from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York. It's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who started his basketball career right here on Long Island as he was a standout high school player at Holy Trinity in Hicksville, New York. He was on the 1980 Holy Trinity team that won the Class A New York State High School Boys Basketball Championship. He went on to play for legendary coach Dean Smith at UNC, where he started alongside future National Basketball Association stars James Worthy, Sam Perkins, Kenny Smith, Brad Darty, and Michael Jordan. He went on to have a successful career in coaching, first as an assistant coach at Davidson and then at Kansas. In 1999, he was named head coach at the University of Notre Dame. In June 2000, he returned home as a head coach of the UNC Tar Heels. 2001, UNC won the ACC regular season championship. He was voted the 2001 AP National Coach of the Year. Two short years later, he was forced to resign from his dream job. He takes us through it all in his new book, Rebound, From Pain to Passion, Leadership Lessons Learned. It is a thrill to welcome the pride of East Meadow, Matt Darty, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Coach. Hey, thank you, Mark. I think uh, Frank Viola might have a little bit of an argument with the pride of East Meadow. Uh, those of you know Frank Viola, the great pitcher, Cy Young winner, who ironically, he and I both live in Mooresville, North Carolina. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, it's great to be on the show. And, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. So it's interesting because you mentioned in the acknowledgments of the book how your leadership journey really started after you were forced to resign at UNC, which I found so interesting. Obviously, there was that was 18 years ago. How would this book be different had you had taken paper to pen back in 2003? Well, it was probably, uh, man, if I wrote it right after I got, uh, I was forced to resign, it'd probably be a, a bitter book. Um, you know, and I, I talk in the book about bitter driving over the bitter river. Uh, you know, your initial reaction is uh, disbelief, dismay, disloyalty, and I think you know you generally don't look at inward, and and so I think that um, I, I purposely didn't write a book, uh, and and purposely, I mean, I had people say, hey, you should sue the university, and. You know, that's not my style. Um, Kevin White, who is uh, retiring as the AD at Duke, was the AD at North Notre Dame when I left. And he's been a good friend. He said, take the high road. You know, there's less traffic up there. And I put that quote in the book. And and um, and that's what I try to do. So if I would have written it right away, it'd probably be a whole different slant and, and not worth a damn for anybody to read. So the forward of the book was written by Michael Jordan, who saw your leadership qualities firsthand. He credits you with making him a better player. And that's pretty high praise yeah. from one of the greatest players to ever play the game. What was your reaction when you read what Michael wrote? Well, first reaction was he should give me 15% of all his, his year, you know, career earnings, right? I mean, if I if I helped him become the best player, the player he is, I, I think I should get a cut. But uh, anyway, it, in all seriousness, it's so humbling, one, that he would do it. Um, and, and he responded probably within 20 minutes 
of me texting him. And, and, and I know he wrote it the way it was written. He wrote that, you know, he couldn't have had somebody else write it. And, um, for him to take, you know, what, what's the most important resource we all have is time. And so when people take the time to do something for someone else, that's a real gift. So I, I look at it as a huge gift from Michael Jordan. The book takes us through your journey and how at an early age you knew you wanted to be a basketball player. You give a lot of the, the credit to your parents for the support and, and um, they showed. And, and you talked about your dad not pushing you into baseball. Now, he was a minor league baseball pitcher. He actually was a teammate of Tom Lasorda's because I actually looked up his stats, which I found <laughs> How did your parents uh, support help you achieve your goals to play high school and, and college basketball? Oh, well, I, I think uh, there's so many things. And, and, you know, I'm a parent myself, and my, my son is 24, my daughter soon to be 22. And I think you give them encouragement and support and try to expose them to as many different experiences as you can. And then they pick what fits them. And I think it's important that they pick it. And then you support that. Uh, my son picked lacrosse. Uh, growing up on Long Island, I was around lacrosse a great deal, but didn't really know the sport. My daughter picked art. You know, she's just accepting a job with Ralph Lauren in New York. Uh, she's very creative. She wants to live in New York City. I uh, want to support that. And so my parents, you know, the best they could, they supported. You know, I played in the band. I, 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 my dad bought me a drum set for Christmas. I remember, like, couldn't believe I got a drum set. And then I think after a couple of years of playing on the drums, my mom got a migraine, and one day I came home, and they were miraculously sold. Uh, so, no, but, you know, what is your gift, right? What are you good at? What do you find fulfillment in? And then support. And that's what my parents did with me. I was obsessed with basketball, and they supported it. You know, signed me up for camps, um, you know, allowed to adjust my schedule. I didn't have to do the dishes after after dinner because I had a race to the park to get into that first game and um, and then showing up like just being present uh, getting goosebumps thinking about it like just knowing they were in the stands like you take that for granted because there's so many kids that don't have that and so you realize that as you get older that not everyone's parents were at, were at, were at every game you know not every parent embraced you after every game win or lose you know that love and support was very powerful. You, you mentioned how they said that you, you said that you didn't have to do the dishes so you could get to the park. And I found it fascinating, the, the lessons you learned at, at Prospect Park. Can you tell our listeners what you learned? On, uh, you know, we always hear about schoolyard ball and, you know, uh, I'll never forget, you know, as a kid, you know, going to uh, Clara B's Kutcher's Basketball Academy, all the players that would come and would talk about what they learned at the park and how integral it was to their basketball skills. What did you learn here on the courts in Long Island? Well, I think, you know, uh, I would like to write another book and the next book will be the park. It'll be titled the park and the lessons learned from the park. And there's so many lessons. Wow. Uh, where to begin. And there's so many successful people that came from the park that, you know, non-basketball, you know, world, you know, business and, and education. I, I think the first thing is, you know, meritocracy. Like you, if you're good, you get chosen to play. If your team wins, you stay on the court. As simple as that. So then that fosters teamwork, competitiveness, gamesmanship, knowing the rule, 
you know, all those things that go into successful teams and companies, coming back, not giving up, uh, overcoming obstacles, you know, overcoming human nature. Like I wrote about this in the book, the last game of the night, the park closes at 10. Let's say you win five in a row. You've had a good night. Last game. That's that's the kiss of death. That's that's the trap game, right? All right, last game. So it means if you lose, you know, it's the last game. It's not like you got to sit and watch somebody else play. So that's when you've got to fight human nature and say, okay, we got to dig in now. We, we want to finish this off. We want to be able to look, go home at night and look in the mirror and say, we ran the table. Not leaving. You're only as good as your last game. That's what I would talk about. And, and lessons I've given my team, NLU, no let up. Like, no let up. When you have a lead at halftime, don't let up. When you have won five games in a row, it's the sixth game, last game of the night. No let up. You achieved some recognition as a high school player. You were second team parade All-American. The first team had Patrick Ewing, Derek Harper, Doc Rivers, among others. How did you feel at that time about being recognized? Did it place any initial pressure on you to succeed? And did being recognized, being selected to play in the McDonald's game, help shape the way you recruited players when you were a coach? Yeah, no, it's a good question, Arnie. Uh, I think the biggest thing we can do to motivate employees. I'm an executive coach. I work with Vistage, where it's one of the oldest executive coaching organizations in the country. To me, the biggest motivation is list. Put me on a list. Yeah, I'd like a bonus. Sure, everyone wants a bonus, but put me on a list. So I was second team. Like, why wasn't I first team? What did I do? What could I have done better? You know, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best player in Long Island. I wanted to be the best player in New York. I wanted to be the best player in the country. Now, it comes to some realizations that, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not as good as Patrick Ewing. Maybe I'm not as good as Sam Perkins and Michael Jordan. But can I be my best? And can I continue to get better? So I'm all about lists. And Coach Smith would put lists up continually, awards for each game. And it was not points-based. It was, it was behavior-based. The behaviors that he felt would lead to success on the court as a team. So things like setting the most screens, uh, smart plays, hustle plays, assist to turnover ratio, draw charges. Those are all things I could do. That didn't take any incredible athletic ability. I could do that. So I wanted my name on that board, on those winners board. And I got some brad, you know, some cups here and you know, for a free throw shooting assist award. Um, draw charge award, not the sexiest things in the world. I would joke with people that I'd walk into a, a bar on campus and go up to the prettiest girl at the bar and say, you know, I'm the, I'm the best screener on the team. And um, she'd kind of laugh and look over my shoulder and see Michael Jordan walk in and walk straight towards him. But it got me a ring. It got me on the court. Uh, I started for three years. And um, I think those lists are so powerful. And I talk to my, my business leaders, like, you want to motivate people, put up a list. Who's the best salesman in the company? Put up a list. So the book also takes us through the recruiting um, phase and college visits. And you state in the book that your mom knew instantly when she picked you up at LaGuardia Airport that you had already made up your mind. Take us back to what you recall about that school visit and why, you know, 
was it so obvious? What, what was the deciding factor that you were all in on UNC? Well, first of all, I think moms know their kids, right? You know, it's like my wife with my son. Like, she knows. You try to, like, I don't know if I'd be a very good poker player, right? Fit is so important with anything. In any job, position, fit. It's not about salary. It's not about what's promised to you. It's what, what, what about fit? The culture, the system. Again, I, and with my Vistage practice, I talk two things. I mean, you got to have a good product, a good service, but if you don't have an operating system and a good culture, you're not going to be successful or as successful as you can be. Coach Smith had both. He had a great operating system and he had a culture, the Carolina way. And that fit Matt Dari. And so I saw that. I felt that on the visit. Like I could fit into this. He would appreciate what I could do. And I felt that they'd have a chance to win a championship every year. My other schools were Virginia and Duke and Notre Dame. And, you know, just Carolina had something else, something extra. And when I visited the other schools, classes were in session. When I visited Carolina, it was fall break, really kind of dead on camp. But I got to watch practice. And that's what really sold me, watching Coach Smith run a practice and, and the appreciation for the things that I already learned how to do from fourth grade on. <clears throat> I had great coaches on Long Island that taught me and, and I embraced those fundamentals and I knew that I could fit in well uh, coaches program. So when I come off the plane, my mom greets me at, back then, they could greet you at uh, the gate check, you know, where I passed through security. And uh, she says, you're going to Carolina, aren't you? And I I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Carolina. And I'm like two days later, I called coach Smith and committed. And that choice couldn't have worked out any better. As you mentioned, your starter on the 81-82 Tar Heels team, uh, which on March 29, 1982, wins the NCAA Men's Division I basketball tournament, defeating uh, Georgetown by a score of 63-62. to um, The interesting thing is, though, um, after college, your, your basketball dreams are, are somewhat crushed. And so many of us watch the draft as it unfolds, and we see the players one by one go get the, their team hat and, and pose. But what we don't see are the really good players that don't get drafted or get drafted much later than they anticipated. Walk us through that experience because it, it's something that you know I found fascinating in the book, and it's something that very rarely do we ever hear about. Yeah, no, thank you, uh, Mark. Wow. Um... A name comes to mind right now, Luke Garza, right? I mean, wasn't he the player of the year in college basketball? His name wasn't called. He's not going to – he may make an NBA roster. And you put in all this work as a player, and you identify as a basketball player. Like, to be really good at something, unless you're freakishly talented, you got to become obsessed with that, whether you're an artist, a musician, or – and that's not really healthy, but to be your best and to achieve at a high level, you've got to become obsessed. And that's your identity. I was identified as a basketball player and that felt darn good. And all of a sudden on that date, 1984 draft date, I was no longer a basketball player. Really? That's, and I, I, I talk about, it, it's like getting, breaking up with a girlfriend. It's like, man, we loved each other for 12 years, and all of a sudden you're telling me you don't want to see me anymore. I'm like, okay, screw you. I don't want to see you either. And so I went and worked on Wall Street, but I cried like a baby. And then the next day was <laughs> the clock radio goes off. Now it's 1984. We had clock radio. Clock radio goes off, and it's, 
It's on the local news. And they go right into the local players drafted. So now, like I hear for the first time, the players that were drafted. Like back then, you didn't get it on your phone, right? You had to wait till the next day or catch it on nightly news. And I remember Rick Carlisle being drafted in the third round by the Celtics. And in my mind, that's where I felt like I wanted to go and should go. When I heard that, it made it even that much more difficult. I was drafted in the sixth round. I mean, they don't have six rounds anymore. They have two rounds. So it was really kind of a slap in my face and a wake-up call that, okay, I'm not that good. Now you have two choices at that moment. You could accept it or you can fight it and try to prove them wrong. So I went to camp. I got hurt. I had a bad back. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to hang on to basketball. I don't want to be a guy that just, that's all they have. And that's why I went to North Carolina, because I wanted to get a good education and have a safety net if and when basketball was over. So you, you stayed in the book how you always had that plan B, even though you felt betrayed by basketball. You go, you, you work on Wall Street, and you come to the conclusion that, that money doesn't motivate you. What do you do next at that point when you, you realize, you come to that conclusion that money didn't motivate you? Well, I quit. I quit. I quit my job. Um, I probably quit before I would get fired um, because I wasn't doing a great job selling bonds, and I quit and moved to North Carolina. Thought I was going to get in the real estate business because I thought, well, I like tangible assets. Like I, 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 I could sell something that you can see, feel, and touch versus a bond yield. To a large extent, that's true. And then I kind of fell into coaching. I was working part-time for a guy named Ed Sockwell in a search business. And he had the Charlotte Sonic AAU team. And so I started, he asked me to coach the team and I started coaching this eighth grade team. And I loved it. My assistant was Charles Waddell, who's now the associate AD at South Carolina. Charles was a great athlete at North Carolina. I planned practice. I picked the kids up. I, I you know, we took them to games. I loved it. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize I would love it like this. And and then ironically, I was doing the radio at Davidson and Bob, they, they fired their coach and hired Bob McKillop, who was my high school coach on Long Island for two years. And he hired me and the rest is history. It's interesting because you, you use that journey at that point to, you know, drive home one of the, the major tenets, I, I think, of your philosophy, and it's basically that life is a series of decisions and dealing with the consequences. The better decisions you make, the better life will be. You end up getting the head coaching in Notre Dame where you had some work to do turning the culture surrounding the basketball program around. You have success, and the number 304 was an early turning point there. Can you share the significance of what 304 meant? Oh, gosh. If anybody has seen the uh, movie Miracle on Ice, uh, where Herb Brooks was coaching the USA Olympic hockey team in 1980, and um, the team comes together, and they're playing an exhibition game somewhere in looks like Sweden or Iceland because there are a lot of pretty girls in the stands and the players are not really into it and they're wanking at the girls in the stands and they get smoked in this exhibition game. So <clears throat> Coach Brooks, you know, the players are like going off the ice and he's like, no, 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 no. You know, on the blue line. So he starts blowing the whistle and they start skating sprints, if you will, you know. And to the point of exhaustion, to the point of throwing up. And, you know, he would ask them after, like, the first few, like, who do you play for? And one player would say, I play for Wisconsin. The other guy would say, I play for Boston College. I play. And after 
he would continually do that. These players were getting beaten down physically and mentally. They would start to say, I'm getting goosebumps talking about this story now. They would respond, I play for United States of America. I play for the USA. USA. So he built a culture. He had built it in a short time through that practice. I did the same with my team. We had just gotten embarrassed in an exhibition game by 24 points to Marathon Oil. And uh, the subtitle in the paper the next day read, um, lackadaisical effort dooms the Irish. And I just start seething. You know, we're supposed to have a day off. And, um, you know, I've been called a lot of things, but lackadaisical is not one of them. And I'll be damned if that was going to start now. And we could have a bad team, but we're not going to be soft and we're not going to be lackadaisical. So I told the coaches to get the managers to tell the players we're going to have practice, but there's going to be no basketballs in the gym. So I put them on the baseline and just start running them. And um, they started to get tired. And uh, I'd get on them. I'd say, you know, I've been called a lot of things, but lackadaisical is not one of them. And, and it's not going to start now. And then I'd run them. And then I'd say, you know, I just, just got you guys. I raised a million dollars to get a new locker room. And you reward me with this. Run them. You know, I spend more time with you guys than I do with my family. You're taking me away from my family. And you reward us coaches with this, you know, you have Notre Dame on your jersey. What kind of pride do you have in that jersey? You know, run them. Guys would fall out. I'd say, get the heck out of the gym. I don't want to see you. And um, so one of the biggest jerk moves I did in that meeting was uh, Matt Carroll, who was a freshman who played in the NBA, said, you know, coach, I'm getting thirsty. Uh, you know, can we get a drink? And I'm not, you know, like Matt, I call him Matty. Matty, I said, I tell you what, I'm getting really parched blowing this whistle. So I asked the manager to bring me a cup of water. I drank the cup of water in front of them, and I said, on the baseline, I blew the whistle. Now, you probably get fired for that today, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but now they didn't like me for the next four or five days. I didn't like them for the next four or five days. But about five days later, we go and play Ohio State at Ohio State. They're ranked fifth in the country. They had beaten Marathon Oil by 25 points. The same team, we lost by 24 points. We go in to Columbus, Ohio. The hair's raising up on my arms again and my legs and beat them on a last-second jump shot. The hugging in the locker room, the celebration in the locker room. I mean, that's why you coach, to push people beyond their limits to achieve great things that they can't achieve on their own. That bus ride home was magical. We get home, and all of a sudden, in the locker room on the whiteboard, there's a number, 304. I'm like, what's 304? Well, that's their calculation of the number of sprints they ran in that practice five days prior. And that became the rallying cry that year. They put it on their sneakers, 304, 304. Pretty cool. So, you know, you mentioned something there while you were telling the story. You said you'd probably get fired for that today. But I, I guess the, the other question to that is that you've gone on this leadership journey after all of this. How do you think you would have reacted to that lackadaisical effort now? Would it be any different knowing you know, what you know about leadership? And would it get the same result, do you think? Yeah, I probably would have let him drink some water. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, 
I would have done something similar, but it might have been um, it might have been couched a little bit differently. Um, you know, you can't not let somebody. Now it was like I don't know how long we ran for. Let's say an hour. You know, if a kid's asking for water, you better give him water. You know, so you probably put water on the baseline because I don't want to hear this. I don't want to. You know, you got to as a leader, you got to anticipate what's the fallout, right? What's the worst thing that can happen? Well. Kid complains, parents call, the AD, you get called in, right? And if you're winning, it's no big deal. If you're not winning or you're a new coach, you're on notice. So I think I would have um, probably done the same thing, but given them water. You know, while we're talking about things that don't play as well today as they may have done back then, if you look back and read articles about your coaching time, Notre Dame, North Carolina, all over the place, you see constant stories about your volatility. You know, arguing referees, throwing things, yelling at players. Looking back, you regret that image. And how do you think, if you're doing it now, you handle things differently? Yeah, I, I think there's a fine line. Uh, I talk about this, Arnie. Um, there's a circle, emotional circle that you're in. And each of us are in. And your biggest strength is your biggest weakness. So I was considered intense my first year because we won. My first technical, my first game, I didn't even try to get a technical. I was stopping my foot because I can't whistle. So I'm stopping my foot. The referee thinks I'm complaining about the call. He takes me up. The place goes berserk. They're so fired up because they have a coach who's fiery. Because the previous coach, Bill Guthridge, great man, great coach, was a very calm demeanor. And the players maybe didn't play with as much emotion as they would have liked. So now I'm intense. But then we go 8-20 and 20 the next year. And now that same type of action is considered volatile. So I should, I crossed that, I went through that barrier. I crossed that, the circle. I went intent, you know, driven, 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 intense. I crossed the line, volatile. So I should have been better at controlling that. And that's when in the book I talk about truth tellers, talk about emotional intelligence. But when you get praise for that, as a young coach, you're like, okay, more the better, right? No, no, not necessarily. And I worked for Roy Williams and Bob McKillop. Both were very fiery coaches, emotional coaches. And that's the way I played. I had to be that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten on the court. So, again, your biggest strength, your biggest weakness. I would have dialed that back a little bit and, and not embraced that image early in my career. So your three seasons at your alma mater in the early 2000s are truly the emotional spine of the book. Uh, a term that ended with your departure after the 2002-3 season. Um, your leadership skills as AJ were, were brought into question a little bit. Um, was it somewhat therapeutic to get this all down on paper all these years later? Yes, I think the one of the biggest benefits of writing this book was the therapeutic aspect of it. Uh, I had written bits and pieces years ago. You know, one thing is to get it on paper. That's kind of therapeutic, but to get it out to the public and then talk about it like this is very therapeutic. And and I stressed that I did not want to make it a tell-all book. Like, I didn't want to bash people. I, I put some people in light that maybe not was as favorable, you know, there's some things about Coach Smith and Bill Dick Bedore that people would say, oh, man, you shouldn't have said that. But that was that was true. Like, that stuff happened. 
and the impact it had on me. You know, people are going to protect their brand, protect the shield like they do in the NFL. And they're going to protect UNC and Dean Smith and Dick Bedore. And I get that. And that's the risk I took with some of those comments. But I also had to protect me. Like I had to, I had to protect, not, not just, I'm talking about my brand. I'm not talking about brand. I'm talking about me emotionally. Because I, I still deal with depression. But I was deeply impacted by depression because of that experience at North Carolina. And some people had a direct you know, had, had, had an impact on that. Ultimately, I had the biggest impact and I didn't read situations properly. That was my inexperience. You know, to get a full taste of the book, I felt like those things needed to be in there. You know, a translatable lesson is no matter what the situation, whether it's sports or business, it's hard to replace a legend. Yeah. And it, it's hard to replace the legend's chosen successor, even harder, even harder when the legend is still around. So what is the takeaway that you have from your experience there in dealing with it and people having to, to replace someone who is beloved, a legend, or whatever? Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do it. Um, yeah, uh, buy a futures, you know, like uh, my Wall Street background, get, buy an insurance policy, get a, get a futures, buy a futures put or whatever uh, on your career. You know, I look at like what John Shire's getting ready to do and Hubert Davis. Um, you know, I think they have two different, you know, one, they've both been there a long time as assistant coach. And I think that's helpful with the transition. Um, the key is, you know, sometimes those leaders that retire, that stay around, um, you know, they've got an ego and their identity is wrapped up into that job. And, you know, it's hard to give the next person credit, just human nature, because now it makes sometimes that they're insecure and most successful people are insecure in some way, shape or form. Sometimes that's why they're so successful, because that insecurity has driven them to the success. So all of a sudden it, it can be difficult to have that person around. It takes a rare individual. And um, so I think understanding who you're replacing and their role moving forward is huge, but it's hard, man. It is hard. It's easier to buy a stock that's a good stock that's beaten up like Notre Dame and try to make progress than it is to buy a stock that's at an all time high and make it better. Well, it's also interesting to note that you're forced out two years before your recruits win an NCAA title under Roy Williams. Um, was there a sense of personal pride that you kind of laid the foundation for that title, even though you weren't there to see it through? Yes, 100%. There's a, a pride to this day. And, and I don't even have to bring it up. I have, I mean, at least once a week, I have somebody tell me thanks for that 2005 championship you know, either in person or social media. And, and so, yeah, my staff and I take great pride in that. Um, Doug Wojcik, Fred Quarterbaum, Bob McKinnon, David Kaysan, you know, we put that team in place. We were, as I talk about the Presbyterian Church, how they go about replacing the pastor, they hire an interim to clean things up and to get it on the right path so the new guy doesn't have to make any drastic changes. I didn't know it at the time, but I was the interim. And we did a darn good job of laying a foundation of a tough competitive culture and getting 
players in there that could win a championship, and, and they did. So, yes, I take great pride in that. So you currently run the Doherty coaching practice, which includes executive coaching, seminars, corporate talks on leadership. The second part of the book gives lots of those leadership lessons, and you start the growth chapter off with a quote which I have never heard before, and I'm surprised because I lead, you know, AJ and I coached a high-end travel team for many years and read a lot of different coaching um, books, but this quote comes from Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And the quote is, I never lose, I either win or learn, which seems to weigh, which seems to me the way you live your life. Given all that you've learned, and it's been 10 years since you coached, would you like another chance at coaching? And which of the two would you prefer, a college position or a pro position and why? Yeah, wow, uh, great question. I, I'd love, now, l listen, man, like you think you've gone through some stuff <laughs> and then you look at like Nelson Mandela and you're like, oh my God. I mean, that guy was in prison for how many years and comes back to be the leader of, of South Africa. I mean, and, and, and not bitter, like the whole bitter river thing. Like he said, if, if I come out, walk out of prison and I'm bitter, I might as well still be in jail, you know? And so that mindset, that that's your, your life's impacted by two things. The people you meet in the books you read and by reading those things, it can open up your mindset. Like, yeah, I failed, but boy, I learned a lot. And then Robin Roberts from Good Morning America says, make your mess your message, right? And so, yeah, I failed. All right, let me go make this mess my message. And now it's a business for me. I mean, but it's my passion. It's I'm preaching. A friend of mine says, you, you preach the most what you need the most. And so when I talk about this stuff, it's ingrained in me now to try to do those little things that I'm asking other people to do. So it's, it's really... Uh, you know, I think the perspective is is huge. Um, I've I'm I'm a Christian. Um, I trust the Lord most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes I like try to control it a little bit more. Like 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 Lord, you you close that door on that job. Now, did you like lock it or is it just closed? Like, can I go and open the door? Like, so, you know, I've looked every spring, March is the worst month for me in terms of depression, literally, because the excitement of March Madness, and I'm like, I should be there. Like, that's my month. Like, that's my identity. And then part of me should says, like, hey, who the hell do you think you are? I mean, that's, that's a hell of an ego, thinking that that's your month and you should be there. You, you have a right to that. I don't have a right to that. Um, but it's a hard month, so it gets you thinking about coaching. You know, and I thought, well, maybe I could be a, an assistant for Hubert Davis. Maybe I could be a head coach at this job. Maybe I can. So, yeah, that, that, that gets in my mind. And I remember I was interviewing for, and I, I was trying to get involved with the Elon coaching job like three or four years ago. Elon College, now it's Elon University, small school in North Carolina. I was the national coach of the year at the University of North Carolina, 30 miles away. I couldn't even get an interview. I mean, a real interview. I remember that the AD texts me and he says, you know, we're going in a different direction. And I wheeled around. I was in bed. I got to my knees and I thanked the Lord for slamming the door. 
not just closing the door, but slamming the door. Because that gave me, okay, God, I get it. Like I'm hard-headed, I'm Irishman from New York. You know, it takes a while, I get it. But still, every March it creeps in. With that said, I'm in a better place. I get to coach, I still coach. I still get fulfillment. I coach my team once a month. We meet 15 to 18 CEOs, and I coach them individually through the month. And I get off a call and it's like, just as rewarding when I was working with a player in their jump shot, I was watching film with them. You know, you still get that same feeling. It's just not as many people watching. But there's also a benefit to not as many people watching because I don't have to be worried about the politics of the job as much. You know, I just do what I do and enjoy what I do. And I don't have to go to a post-game press conference. I don't have to deal with AAU coaches. You know, I recruit, I go business, you know, business to business. I'm going to, not business to customers. I'm going to business to business really and dealing with a clientele that's very professional that when no, they say no, it generally means no. When they say yes, it generally means yes. As opposed to dealing with a lot of the AAU coaches and the parents that you have to deal with, especially in today's game. Where's the best place for people to get this great new book? Well, they, they can go to the website, rebound-book.com, and they can order it through me, uh, especially if they want a signed copy. And that's $19.50, $19.50. Or they can go to Amazon and probably get it a little cheaper and maybe quicker, but uh, they won't get it personalized. So either way, um, it's been, you know, Amazon had me listed as a bestseller, uh, very flattering, uh, feels good. And to be able to do something like this with you guys, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, Coach, thanks so much for your Thank time you. tonight. More importantly, thanks for showing the basketball world and the world how tough Long Islanders are as well. Strong Island, baby. Matt Doherty, former Tar Heel, former AP College Coach of the Year.